Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. This month's episode is with culture coach Owen Eastwood. Eastwood has worked with teams including South Africa cricket, Harlequins rugby, and for the last five years, England football. He's also recently had a book published called Belonging, which is about the ancient code of togetherness. Owen started off by telling Simon Austin about what his work entails. I call myself a performance coach, and that's important to me because I'm not an executive coach. I'm not a life coach. I'm a performance coach. So you know, I'm, my role is to help a team perform better. Um, so that's important to me, that title. My specialism, if you like, is around building an optimal environment for our people to, to compete for. That's it. And so that's my really real interest. And obviously in, in belonging, that's what I really get into was what have we learned both from science, but also from our ancestors around what, what is the optimal environment that people thrive in, are able to, you know, get close to their full potential and do it in a way where everybody is lined up and, and selfless. The other things I'm pretty fascinated by. So that's when I get invited by a team to come and have the conversation. It's around that. They're not asking me to help on their strength and conditioning or <laughs> anything, anything practical like that. It's a bit more, let's get our thinking straight around this. And then obviously we need to be, have some good practical advice about how we bring it to life. Yeah, and it seems to me quite an unusual job, really, fo- focusing on the culture, as you say. Um, how did you get into that in the first place? Yeah, well, I've probably invented my own job, to be perfectly honest. Um, I got into it completely by accident. I was a lawyer for around 20 or so years, which I absolutely loved. Um, I love studying it. I love practicing it. I love the people I worked with. It was very, I started practicing some sports law. And as you know, you know, you get talking to people in that environment and I find them very open. And even though I was a lawyer, because I was fascinated by sport and leadership and things, you know, they would just naturally have a conversation over a coffee or during a practice that I was attending. And that they sl- I just slowly got some opportunities to, to have these conversations with people in sport beyond legal matters and into a little bit about some of the practical challenges they were facing. And what I found over time, without any real insight at all, but what I found is often the issues they raised were to do with the environment and people and relationships. And they didn't seem to, although there would be psychologists and, and other specialists around, they didn't seem to have great answers to some of those questions. That definitely got me curious. I started doing a bit of my own reading and then there was just some people started asking me to come and have a conversation and then come in to help and over a couple of years, probably I became a coach and left the law. But in some ways, I probably invented it. I don't think if you went on Google, there's many people who would just define their job in the way that I do. But I, and I'm not trained. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not trained in any of this. It's all really practical experience that I've accumulated. So I've just put a label on onto that, and that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, excellent. What was your first involvement with the sports team? Uh, working with actual players and coaches, my first project was with the South African cricket team, actually. So I'd done a little bit. The All Blacks had had a review um, by their sponsor, Adidas, um, and I was, in, I was brought into that. But th- that was to help explain to Adidas some of the special attributes of the All Blacks team culture. So I wasn't working with the All Black team. I was working for Adidas, really. And, and I spoke with players, spoke with coaches, and, and then translated it back to Adidas around some of the Maori ideas that sit behind the All Blacks culture. Then I was asked 
by Mike Ford when he was performance director at Chelsea Football Club just to come and have some conversations with him around how they were sort of the blue revolution, you know, how they were going to transform their identity and 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 their culture from the club that it had been through to the one where a new owner had come in with a lot of money and Mourinho, et cetera, had come in to coach. But, that, you know, they were just good conversations, really. I, wouldn't, I wasn't working with the team. So South African cricket team was the first time I actually got – had to roll my sleeves up and work with the players and coaches. And we actually had to create something from scratch. And, you know, as in belonging, I, I have a whole chapter on explaining the context of that and how we went about it. Yeah, yeah, no, that was very interesting. And it was very interesting reading about your own upbringing and the influence of the Maori mm-hmm. culture as well. So something I'd not heard of before, that uh, Farka Papa. Um, yeah. And you talk in the book about how you wrote a letter to the is it the, the local Maori tribe um yeah. to ask about your own sort of heritage and sense of belonging um which was really interesting yeah i think when i when i think about growing up sport was absolutely central to it and that's actually something that i bring to my work today i sometimes talk about this so when i was five my father passed away suddenly he was only 41 um and there was so in my family, there was my mother was 39, then we there was two brothers, 12 and 10, myself was five, and my sister was three. And yeah, obviously it was a very shocking thing to happen. And sport for me was a real escape from I think there was a lot of suffering in our family. Well, I know there was. For for me, I would go and kick a ball around in the winter or or hit a cricket ball in the summer just by myself we lived in a farmland and there was big paddocks that I could go and play in and I I really escaped and it sort of created another world in my mind of where I was and I actually I know it might sound corny but I owe sport a lot I think for being able to um, help me cope with with you know those tough times but the other thing about sport which really opened my eyes was that you know we were a single parent family we were on a widow's benefit. My mother had a part-time job at the school, just helping out in an admin role. And that was us. You know, a lot of our food, et cetera, would come from our wider family. So it was a very humble background. But, you know, we never wanted for, for much, but we didn't have any, any special things, that was for sure. And But what, what would happen is that when I was growing up, I would get a ride into the city that was near us in Vicargill and watch our local rugby team, Southland. And our local rugby team, we we are the very small province at the bottom of the South Island. But when I was growing up, we had six All Blacks in our first 15, which it's never, now we've probably had one All Black in the last decade, but at that time, in that one team, we had six teams. And, you know, one year, you know, we beat Australia, um, who were on tour. The following year, we beat France, and we had this an amazing team. Who and and so what that felt like for me was I was about 10, 11, whatever. I was, I'd go in and watch this team play who represented where I came from, and they were beating anybody. And I would go away from that thinking I was a champion. And I was thinking like I was a real winner, <laughs> and I was part of something very special. And I've never ever forgotten that. Um, you know, and to me, that's why purpose and the connection with the tribe is so important around sports. Because, I, I, again, I benefited from that. It actually helped with my own self-esteem in many ways. It made me feel quite good about myself and sort of proud of where I came from. 
So, yeah. And, and then, you know, when I was 12, I did, I contacted my Maori tribe and just said to them that, you know, what do you know about who I am? Because my father was part Maori. And, you know, they wrote a beautiful letter back just explaining that going back 25 generations of where I came from and what, what was the sense of identity of our tribe. And that was another massive factor in giving myself a bit of confidence and a bit of esteem. No, that's fascinating. Um, and did, did you notice a big contrast then in the, the sense of identity of the All Blacks, which is so strong? And then when you came into work with England in 2016, was there a big contrast there? Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, I'd say <clears throat> for the players who, who put the shirt on, they probably would have similar pride. I, wouldn't, I would not undervalue that or underestimate that whatsoever. But that, how they went about framing what it meant to wear the shirt is very, very different. I think one thing I was surprised about with, with England was there was just no institutional passing down of the stories, you know, the original team um, or any of the ancestral team. There was a lot of knowledge of 1966, but a lot of it was just sort of random depending on what the, what the guys had heard growing up and, you know, those type of things. So, while the All Blacks have very powerful and clear inductions and rituals around explaining the, where they come from, their ancestors, the, you know, what the shirt represents, where their values come from, what they look like when they're being lived, all of those things are you know, really well done. Um, so you know, that's something we've tried to move towards with England, trying to give the players an understanding of this is the heritage of the team. This is the, what we call our anchors around our identity and these are the stories of where they've been lived in the past and then create a space for them to imagine how they could live them themselves and leave their own legacy. Yeah, yeah, because I know you've got that quote from uh, Michael Owen in the book where he says it was never really spoken about what it means to be English um, when he was no. in the team. No, and he, con he, he contrasts that with Manchester United when he's being recruited by Alex Ferguson. Um, you know, Sir Alex invited him to his house, sat him down and explained the identity story of Manchester United and what that shirt meant. Mm. And he'd never heard a, a coach talk like that before. And not, not only was that part of the recruitment process, it was something that, you know, Sir Alex mentioned as, in, in his coaching, he integrated into his coaching, those values of Manchester United and the identity and also the opportunity for that team to, to make its own history. So those things stuck with Michael. And when I spoke with him, he, he was... Curious, probably, as to why similar conversations hadn't happened in the England team when he played for that team, which you know had as an equal, if, if not even greater, um, story around itself. Yeah. So, how did you go about kind of building that sense of belonging and the heritage with the England team? You know, I think it's important. I'm a coach, so my role is to provide insights and ideas and challenge if necessary to to the people really responsible for it which is the coaches management team and the players so I definitely um, not taking credit for you know the journey they've been on under Gareth Southgate let's want to make that clear yeah um, but you know my role was first of all belonging is a condition that humans require we have a need to belong. It's not a just a psychological thing. It's a biological thing. We have a hormonal reaction in, in, in an environment we don't feel we belong. We get much more anxiety, much more stress hormones. We leak energy. We leak focus. We start getting a little bit concerned about micro-signaling uh, of people. It's hard to relax. 
we're, we're trying to fit in, but we feel like maybe we're an outsider. These things all take away from us focusing on our role and performing at our best. So that need to belong is, is, is necessary to understand that. And I remember a, a funny conversation I had in a football environment once where I remember someone nodded and said, you yeah, know, no, I, I understand that um, our, we, humans have a need to belong. I'm just not too sure if it applies on football. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I love when people say stuff like that because we, we, we had a good chat about it. But definitely applies on football, definitely applies in any environment, team, group you're in. But it does beg a question of, you know, what is it I belong to? It's not just someone coming up to and say, hey, you belong here. Happy days. It doesn't quite work like that. We, we are looking for a story of who this team is in order for us to feel a sense of belonging to it. So that's the first thing we needed to do is go back and excavate the history of the team. Go back to the 1870s, the very first team, some of the characters, and just move through what happened going through the First World War going through golden periods, going through periods where the team struggled. Um, looking at 1966, not as like a trophy, but what was special about that team? I mean, why were they able to overcome their adversity? What was the culture like? You know, rather than seeing them as icons, just seeing them as, as just fellow people who wore the shirt. So Bobby Moore, for example, you know, rather than just some iconic untouchable, I think the way we would think about him is he is someone who personifies um, composure with shown the team clips of him tackling Pelé in the penalty box, looking up and then putting through calmly an amazing ball which sets off an attack. You know, so those practical traits that that, that when we wear the shirt, we inherit those traits, you know, and, and therefore those ancestors become much more real and, you, you know, practical, useful, rather than just big superheroes. So, we've, you know, that's all been put together and Gareth, Southgate has done a wonderful job of giving the players a sense of let's write our own chapter now. Let's not be, you know, defined by what went before us. You know, let's just create our own story. And if people are doubters and people think we've got weaknesses and people think we can't compete at the very highest level, okay, that's fine. They, they can think that. But actually we've got an opportunity to, to do our own thing. And obviously he's had a hell of a lot of success in the last two big tournaments and making that team competitive and creating history. And I suppose identity is always evolving, isn't it, really? Because I know we had a chat a few months ago and um, what it means to me to be English or what I see that as is going to be probably different than someone a lot younger or from a different background. Um, and I suppose I think of some of the black players in the team, maybe when they look at the team in 66, you know, there weren't any black players in that team, for example, Um so that identity does always have to have to move. And I think you call it creating a new chapter, don't you, in, in the book? Hmm. I know. I, I learned this myself. With the South African cricket team in 2010, we created this proteophyre culture, which had this defined purpose, really powerful sense of identity, anchored around three traits that we really value um, as being part of this team and we, and we value on each other. And we aspire to live those traits when we wear the shirt. So it was pretty good. And the team went and had an amazing run where for four years, they were the world number one in Test Nation, except for one month in that period. Like they had an amazing run. Then they lost the World Cup semi-final in 2015. And they were so gutted that a lot of the senior players just lost a bit of motivation, lost, lost a bit of energy around that. And the team slipped down to world number seventh. So in, in 2016, I was invited to come back and we wanted to reconnect with what this culture actually was. And when I went into that camp, I actually had a mindset, just my inexperience, really. 
that what we need to do is just sort of connect everyone back to what that old identity was and it'll be happy days again. And But what I found during that camp was a massive learning for me is that I, well, the first thing I needed to do and the coaches need to do is actually just shut up and listen to the players explain what it meant to them to wear the shirt. And something that really powerfully came out of that 2016 camp was that the, the young guys, and it, was, it wasn't one culture or one race, it was actually just young generation generally, felt the team was too defensive and cautious and wanted to play a much more aggressive, proactive style of play. And they equated that to what the identity of the nation was um, and how South, South Africa was emerging as a country with more energy and, and, and more powerful and more, to be more assertive. And so we actually the whole culture and the identity was shifted around. The senior players understood that, listened and bought into it, and, and the coaches facilitated it. So the identity of the team shifted again and evolved. So coming back to your point about the you know, England football team, for example, absolutely. Uh, the key thing is to make it as inclusive as possible so that it's not one version of who we are, that we're taking multiple perspectives on who we are. Um, so part of, the, part of the heritage story, of course, is Viv Anderson um, being the first you know, full international senior men's player for England. But so was Laurie Cunningham who actually a year before played for the England under-21 team and was the first under-21 guy ever to score a goal when they beat Scotland 1-0. So that's something we've done as well, just introduce the story of Laurie Cunningham because he's quite an epic character in his own right, very, very talented, um, quite a flamboyant attacking player, went to Real Madrid from West Bromwich Albion, which was like a massive thing in those days. Came back to Manchester United for a bit, then I think went back to Spain and was tragically killed in a car accident in Spain. And, and he was someone that was just forgotten. But for a lot of players in the team, he's someone they can look to and they like his swagger. They like the fact that he was a pioneer in creative history. They liked his courage in going to Spain and putting himself you know, in the spotlight for Real Madrid. But there's also a lot of emotion around the fact that his life was taken away too young. Mm. So those stories are really, really important. It's not just you know, some of the usual names, I suppose. And I suppose that listening was evident with Gareth with the taking of the knee, where he very much listened to the players and he said he learned from them and he took the lead from them really on that. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that was well received and I think people were impressed by his leadership around that. I know I certainly was. Um, I think one of the things about his leadership is that he genuinely sees it as a player's game. That's how I interpret his philosophy. It is their game. And he is there to facilitate them achieving, you know, what, what their potential might be. It's not all about him. He's not the hero of it. The players are the hero of it. I know that sounds a bit basic, but I think sometimes people get that a bit wrong, that the players are pieces, you know, in a chess game that you move around or whatever, and it's actually the coach or the manager is the, is the real hero of it. But, he, you know, his humility and his experiences tell him something different. I think that his stance on that is an example. Yeah. And the players can see that, can't they? If the manager is in it for themselves or if he's in it for the group. I really do believe that. And I think a lot of that is just unconscious. It's not a thought process. I think when we're in an environment and we think our leader cares about us and will put us before themselves, I think we have a different hormonal state. Well, I know we do. Then if we have doubts about that, whether we think that the manager is in it for themselves, first of all, and could turn on us 
could put us under the bus if things start going wrong. I think that makes a massive difference to how people, you know, some people are more resilient to that than others, but I think it affects everybody. Oh, do, do just a final one in England. Um, there, there were some interesting things that were done, weren't there? Because Dave Reddin did a presentation for us at one of our webinars. Um, so he talked about things like the trip to the Marines, the legacy numbers, um, the letters from the previous players in the position. Um, yeah, I just wonder if you could talk about those a little bit um, before we move on. Well, the first thing is, you know, when I was invited to have a conversation with the guys, I think it was 2016, it was Dan Ashworth, Dave Redden and Matt Crocker. Yeah, I, I still have a huge amount of respect for the fact that they would even invite someone like me to come and have a chat. And that shows a real open-mindedness and also, I think, a real growth mindset that they, they felt this was a space that we could possibly do better and give us a competitive advantage. So, you know, one thing I've learned with my experience is, is you know, someone like me doesn't turn up and says, oh, hey, guys, I'm going to open your eyes. This is how the All Blacks do things. Let's go and copy it. You know, this is the template for us. It absolutely does not work like that. Um, I don't have a model or a template. I think everything is just incredibly contextual around who you are, you know, the history of the club, the ownership of the club, the personalities at the club. All of these things affect what we can and can't do from a cultural point of view. So they had a real open-mindedness around exploring these ideas. And, you know, when I came, I, I spent three months actually doing a really, really deep reflection on on the history of the team, but also how the culture could be taken forward. And again, they, they received that really well because that had some real challenging ideas in it, um, you know, included some players felt like we didn't really have an identity. We just copied what France and Spain were doing and it felt like a little bit soulless. There were sort of experiences of, of some of the, you know, um, black players who was possibly news to them as well. There, there was, you know, there was a lot in there which sort of, challenged the way things had been done in the past and you know again I got a huge respect for the fact that they said okay well let's design something a little bit different and and let's listen to some other sports and and, and think about how they've done things and integrate those ideas if we can and then you know when Gareth became the manager you know he he philosophically was aligned with exploring those ideas while some managers probably wouldn't have been so the timing of that worked out very well um, yeah, there's lots of, you know, there's the marine camps, there's lots of things. I think during the Euros there was um, some coverage around a ceremony where the players were each given a legacy cap, and the, but that was done in quite an emotive, powerful way, led by Gareth, of course. There was also a film produced for that. I think, you know, there's lots of those little things, but I think the bigger thing to convey is that when you have a culture and you have an identity, you've got to keep it fresh and alive. You can't just have a camp once um, every couple of years and talk about it. It has to be integrated into the experience. Mm. So the, the language, you know, for example, the values, it's one of the challenges for the coaches to actually try and bring it into the way they coach. That's when it really starts to resonate with the players. So it's something that they feel and see on the field. It's not just sort of, um, you know, talks about our heritage or visioning of the future. Those things are important, but it's the integration. So people like Ian Mitchell, Bryce Kavanagh do a wonderful job around, you know, bringing it into the day-to-day -day environment in the England team, um, obviously led by Gareth and Steve Holland. I'd imagine that the former players were very pleased to be involved as well and to still feel that link, because the link goes both ways, I guess. Yeah. Well, they were ama ama amazing, really, in how 
um, welcoming they were of me to come and have a conversation. I met with England players back in the 1950s. I you know, went to Jimmy Armfield's house in Blackpool and spent an afternoon with him and just asking him what it was like in his you know, 58, 62, 66 World Cups and his experiences. And you know, the players love those stories being brought back, I think. You know, one of the ones which was highlighted in an article before the Euros was, you know, in that conversation with Jimmy, that, that amazing situation where he was the captain of the team between the 62 and 66 World Cups. And I think the 62 World Cup, he was in the World Eleven, And so he was the natural captain of the 66 team. And I think it was the last, pre, last first division game in those days of the season. I think uh, 65, he got injured, quite a bad injury. He was out for quite a period of time and he really came back in some warm-up games. So Alf Ramsey selected him for the team but said to him, I'm not sure whether you're going to be fit enough to really contribute here. So you're not going to start and Bobby Moore will continue to captain the team. So, you know, here was this guy who really, it looked like life was destined for him to captain the team in a home World Cup in 66 and it was taken away from him. And as the tournament turned out, he was dressed for every single game. He didn't get one minute of play. He did get a winner's medal, but he didn't actually take the field. So just imagine what that would have been like for him. And I asked him about how do you dealt with that? And he, he just, without any hesitation, just said, you know, on any given day, someone has to make a sacrifice. He said that was our ethos of the team. So it would have been completely indulgent and selfish for me to have had my head down, feeling sorry for myself. That just was not the culture of that team. So that was something that we brought back to the team and said, you know, this is something from our heritage, our history that we can reconnect with and live. So it's those practical things we're looking for, you know, not just we're a great team, we're better than everyone else. And I think that's all BS. It's, it's much more practical about, you know, this is what's special about and different about us. And, you know, this should inspire us to sort of try and create our own story. And you mentioned Harlequins at the start. I've been really fascinated actually about what's happened there because... I suppose a lot of it has kind of defied conventional logic, hasn't it? So just to explain to people, I think the coach when, um, was it December or uh, January? Yeah. Right. And there wasn't an appointment of another head coach. Um, and then the team has gone from pretty much the bottom of the table to champions and playing a fantastic style of rugby as well. Um, and I know you've been involved with them and I think you're on the board now, aren't you, as well? Mm. That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I came in in, I think, December, just, just to um, work with the board, really, and to, to, to just reflect on the bigger picture, not the fact that the team was, wasn't performing very well at that time. It was a bigger picture reflection. Where are we? And, and, and what sort of state is our culture? And are we clear about what we're trying to do going forward into the future? And, and you know, we could see that we needed some, to do some work around that. So I, I've helped them do that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't working with the team um, the players themselves. And I would just have conversations during the season, obviously, with the coaching staff who did an amazing job after, you know, the head coach departed. You know, I think, some, you know, it's very tempting when a team wins to say, oh, my God, they've just revealed the recipe for eternal success. You know, we're a bit quick to jump on that. But at the same time, we have got to continually try and learn from, you know, positive and negative experiences. Also, I, you got to understand, I've got my own biases, so I'm looking for that. <laughs> I'm looking at these things and, and having my, you know, confirmation bias. But I, when I think about Harlequins, I suppose a few things jumped to mind. Um, one was just empowering players, 
because you know where they were you know towards the bottom of the table and they lost the head coach who who was a good person and the, the players cared about um they could have gone one of two ways really they could have tanked and particularly given the fact that relegation was suspended last season so there wasn't the threat of being relegated so they could have easily tanked i think that could have happened alternatively they could have decided actually you know we've got an opportunity maybe just to play in a different way and with a bit of freedom because no one's really ex- expecting much from us. So why don't we just commit to each other and just go for it? And that's what they did. Um, you know, I think one of the narratives, which is, is an interesting one, is the idea of the genius coach and genius manager. You know, we, I, I think in football, there's far too much of this idea that what we need is a genius manager. Obviously, managers of any leader is very, very important. I don't want to understate that, but I, I think there's some interesting research and interesting books, and in you know, recently around parenting, which I think is quite a good analogy. And and in some ways, I think the punchline is, it's not about being a genius parent. It's about avoiding doing dumb things and screwing them up. <laughs> and as a non-genius parent, I think I can relate to that. So you, you know, you don't have to be brilliant better than every other parent, better than every other coach, but actually just don't, don't, don't do things that's, and I think, so things that can screw a team up are things like distrust, like people actually not trusting each other just because of the way it's been set up or the way of behaviours. I think it's things like people aren't clear on actually what the game plan is and actually what my role is within it. It's things like, I think, sort of wild mood swings and inconsistent behavior from leaders where you come in each day not knowing what the hell the environment's going to be. I, I think that's, and, and same with parenting probably, don't think that's optimal for people. I think people thrive when there's a consistency and a com- composure around the environment, albeit we understand life and sometimes some days are better than others and things blow up from time to time. We understand that, but the norm is something which is pretty consistent and predictable and pretty calm. So, so if, you, if you're not doing those things, so I think that's one thing. I, I, I'm still thinking about it, but with Harlequins, I think the coaches came in and sort of simplified everything. I think they shortened practices, shortened meetings, just asked the players for their views. There wasn't any complication or any, anything political going on, nothing like that. They were, they, you know, they were able to get this great working relationship and the players bought into it and they started to take ownership of it. And, they, and, and most importantly, on the field, they were driving it. Um, so, you know, I, that, that's how I look at that a little bit. It, it was interesting as well with the style of play because we'd been used to hearing that you couldn't play this style anymore because of modern rules and the way the game was going. But they did play a very flamboyant running style of rugby, which went back to their traditions. Yeah, that's exactly right. They played a, Harlequins, I think, is the fourth oldest rugby club in the world. Uh, it's got an amazing heritage. And right from very early days, they attracted these really attacking backs in particular. And that one of their really important pioneer founders was Adrian Stoop, who was captain of England at the same time captain of Quinns. And, and he just believed in playing with a lot more wood than a lot more pace in the early 1900s. But that, that caught on at the club and has never left them. And they still have that mindset that our fundamentally we are an attacking team. And we also love having a license to be a little bit unpredictable. So we don't just play by numbers. And, and that's another thing that happened during this season was that, you know, in parallel with the work I was doing around defining some of this stuff, 
you know, in parallel and independent in many ways from that, the coaches and players started to just reconnect with what the authentic Quinn's identity was, which is that when we've got the ball, we don't really want to be necessarily kicking it away or, or, or just going through phases. We actually want to attack from anywhere on the field, but also in a way which is a bit unpredictable and, and, and just making it up as we go a little bit. So they love that. I mean, who doesn't? I don't know many kids who play rugby or football or anything in the back in the backyard who just are desperate not to have the ball and defend. You know, I think we like to have the ball. We like to do something with it, and we the one to score. So you're just tapping into something which is just there. So they did a wonderful job of that. And you know, there will be people looking at their defensive record and saying that was impossible. I mean, they conceded so many more tries than you're allowed to statistically to be a champion team, but they managed to do it. And the mindset was a little bit of whatever a number of tries we concede will score more. Um, but, you know, that's something that they need, I believe they need to mature and evolve because I don't think that's potentially a sustainable mindset. And I know that with the new head coach, et cetera, there's a real focus on getting better from a defensive point of view. But they definitely don't want to diminish their attacking game. And also... Because I got such a strong sense of identity, and the fans really, um, you know, believe in that and and have a love for it, I think the club would prefer to play that identity and maybe not be win every year, rather than play a different type of identity, more attritional defensive style, which does bring you know success. And I think it's an interesting question with fans is that so everyone's obsessed with winning competitions and, and tournaments, et cetera. But I do think the way we play matters and the way that our fans feel about it actually matter. And, you know, you can win a championship, but you can do it in a bit of a soulless way, which is quite quickly forgotten. And I think that's one of the great things about Quinn's season last year. It was done in such a spectacular way that it will never, ever be forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And it's made me think that you, you talked about the superstar coach um, I suppose that's a lot of pressure to put on one person, isn't it, really? And I wonder if it makes you a little bit more risk-averse because if you play that flamboyant style and it goes wrong, you know, all the flack is on one person. Whereas if it's the collective of all decided, there's quite a lot more strength there, maybe, and willingness to take risks. Well, a big word there is alignment. So there's something I've learned in the work that I've done. is It's not just a matter of a coach or even the players saying, we're going to play this sort of really attacking style. It's going to create some risks from a defensive point of view, but we believe we can overcome it. Let's go for it. You can't just do that in a dressing room. It has to be aligned with the ownership, with the board, with the executives, with the performance staff. Everyone has to be on the same page. And fundamentally, that was what I was asked to do at Harlequins, is to help... Um, redefine who they were and how they wanted to go about things, but make sure that everybody across the organisation, all staff members, including commercial operations, everybody, as well as the players, of course, from the board down, we buy into this. This is how we want to be as an organisation and as a team. Okay, we and so then the coach is in a much better position. You know, if we lose a couple of games in a row, they're not possibly feeling under threat because they are know that. This is the, the way we're doing things. Everybody has signed off on mm. and understands the pros and cons with it. Yeah. So yeah. That, 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 that is important because if there's a disconnection there between even the chief executive or the performance director or football director, let alone the board or the owner, then we've got major problems. We're just not, I don't think it's sustainable to carry on that way. No, no. That is what I see in football actually quite a bit is... Um, 
maybe a bit of a, oh, not a clear message from the top that goes all the way through and maybe not a clear structure as well. So mm. um, you're getting different messages from different leaders um, right at the top. And belonging, I actually set out a story there where, which is from a real life experience where the team I was involved in was playing okay. Not great, but playing okay. But it, it lost three games in a row and it was just, just ended up just outside that playoff bubble. But it was, it was still a quarter of the season to go. But they were playing the way that had been signed off on and they were doing everything on a day-to-day basis that was in the performance plan, if you like. Um, so nothing crazy was going on. But the owner just lost patience and started making comments to the media around when he was asked about losing three games in a row. He started talking about must-win games. He then started talking about how the manager's contract expires at the end of the season, and it's something that the club is going to have to think deeply, which is unbelievably unhelpful and just created a real sense of distrust there from the manager. The owner then had this, you know, had a very heavy conversation with the CEO over the weekend explaining we need to win the next game. I don't care how, we need to win it. We're not losing four games and falling further away. We're making the playoffs. We're winning this week. Then what happens is people come into the club and the CEO and the manager in the room on a Monday morning with the door shut and people could feel the tension around that. The manager comes out. (laughs) The body language isn't great. He's clearly stressed. Um, Then he goes and meets with the coach. And the coaching staff, this all becomes contagion of stress, anxiety, distrust, really, because now we're under pressure to do something a bit different. So in the coaches' meeting, the coach starts talking about we need to actually tighten up. We need to, t- to change our game plan. We need to not make any mistakes. We need to be tougher on these players about their performance. We need to train harder this week. We need to be more physical. All of these things. So we start changing the way we're doing things, even though this is the way we, you know, we got into the playoff picture in the first place. So then the training session happens straight after that, and the players feel it automatically. They can feel the body language, the stress, the tension. They physically tighten up as well. We know these are hormonal biological facts. So by the owner's behavior, 24 hours in the 24-hour cycle, the whole mindset and the organization of the team and the way it's being led is changed, and the team gets thumped that week. Okay, and then and then and lose the next two, miss the playoffs. So that's an example where alignment, being calm through the ups and downs of a competition is so important. And if it's not there, you know, it really, really and sometimes it's something fans don't necessarily see or, or completely understand. Yeah. But it's a real, really very real component of high performance. I think quite a lot of the time owners are part-time because they have other businesses they've been very successful in. So they're not on the ground all the time. They maybe don't understand fully what's going on, but they still want to have an input. Yeah. And perhaps the best clubs are the ones where they trust a technical director or a sporting director to run the football side and they are doing it full-time. They really understand it and they have a very clear messaging all the time. I think that's a really positive evolution that a director of football, directors of performance are coming into those clubs. And Billy Millard fills that role at Harlequins. Um, and he can look over the whole of the performance landscape, the men's team and the women's team, the academy, the pipelines, 
pathways, the relationships with the various schools in, in, in the region, making sure that from the strength and conditioning, medical, all of those areas are world-class, give us a competitive advantage. You know, a manager can't do all that. No. But often that was their role and still is for many coaches. And it doesn't really make sense to me. I think it's a, yeah, but having said that, it's all very well to create an organogram with that. But the relationship between those people is just critical. There needs to be trust between the, the director of football, the director of sport and the head coach. So all those things need to be done very well. And that's a reflection of the culture you build. But mm-hmm. I do definitely think there's progressing. Matt Crocker going into Southampton, those type of roles really, I think, make a hell of a lot of sense. But, you know, one thing that it doesn't necessarily manage are the owners. <laughs> and that's still just a really, you know, and that's something I enjoy. I've had a few experiences now where I've actually worked directly with owners. Mm. And just touching on your point, often you can become very wealthy and maybe even a billionaire by doing things in a very linear, organized way. You know, we do one, two, three, four, and five well, and we make a whole lot of money. Um, it's a linear process. It's like that factory production sort of mindset. You know, everyone just does their job one after the other, then we succeed. And football is much more complicated than that. There's so many things outside our control, including a competitor every single week that's trying to undermine us. Um, the weather, umpiring, coaching, I'm oh, sorry, refereeing, all sorts of things are. are, are potentially disrupting us. And in that type of environment, we, we need a lot of cohesion and a sense of togetherness in our group, which is, is more the case than maybe on a factory floor and other places. I think that's something that some owners and even boards have to go on a bit of a, a, a journey on, try to understand that this is not a normal working situation. Mm. Um, this is more complex and it's more sensitive and fragile in some ways. So, you know, your culture is really, really makes a big, big difference when it comes to sports teams. Yeah. Maybe more than a lot of business teams. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose football has always been very short term because it's around the result on the Saturday. Um, but it seems to me it's becoming more short term than ever, really, with social media, uh, you know, radio phone-ins, 24-hour media. Um, is that difficult for you? Because what you're doing is very long-term, isn't it, by its very essence? Mm. Yeah, well, for me personally, it doesn't bother me because I, I am very disciplined around what I consume in terms of media. And, um, you know, I've learned that through experience. So, and I had messages after the year, I was just saying, you know, I hope you're okay, you know. <laughs> um, not that, you know, I'm, I'm a, quite an insignificant player and obviously and I was thinking about the, you know, the, the management team and the coaches and the players, but even, you know, even to me that, you know, hope you're okay, must have been gutted. And I don't feel like that at all. That is a team which has progressed quite incredibly under Gareth, is able to compete with anyone on any given day in big tournaments, has, has created so much history, winning a penalty shootout in a World Cup, making the Euros final. A really young team who really compete hard. Well, what's not to like about that? You know, if you're a coach, you, you know, which I am, my focus is on helping people get better over time and achieve whatever mission they set for themselves. So, you know, the way I think about it and, and reflect on it is different than the way maybe the media would um, have us believe these things are great successes or great failures. So that, that's part of it. I think also when I'm working with the team generally, you know, we're thinking about a two, three, four-year vision of what we're trying to achieve. 
And because I, I, I genuinely believe, how do you really plan for success unless you can do that? Yeah. If we can only plan a week or two weeks ahead or 10 games ahead and someone might get changed in a fundamental role, I, I wouldn't work in an environment like that because I, I couldn't see that I would add any value. Would, you know, whatever I came up with or any help I tried to give would be blown up um, before the season was halfway through. So that holds zero interest for me. So I work with organisations, teams where they are prepared to, and they got the confidence um, to talk about, okay, this is the next two, three, four years, what we want to achieve, working out what we need to do right now to become even more competitive, and then this is the success we'd like to have. So again, if we're having short-term disappointment, that, that obviously it's not enjoyable, but if you're going to be in high-performance space, you've got to be able to handle that. Yeah, and not yep. get too downcast by it. So, my question always is: Are we still tracking in that direction of what we've set for, to achieve in the next four years or so? And if yep. we are, even though we're having some setbacks, then it's okay. I've got a friend who he, he always rolls his eyes a bit when he hears about culture in sports. Um, and I know that was a criticism of Stuart Lancaster, wasn't it? In two thousand and fifteen, I think some of the players and commentators said he focused too much on culture to the detriment of kind of the nuts and bolts. Um, do, do you think that was fair in that particular case? And is that a valid uh, criticism? Um, no, I don't think that was fair at all. He's a very special coach and he actually is one of those people who definitely understands the balance you need between strategy and planning and culture. And in fact, some of the criticisms of players subsequent to that World Cup was actually to do with the culture. It wasn't that there was too much culture. It was was that there were certain things about the culture they would have done differently. So I think that's quite an important distinction there. You know, the English Institute of Sport shared that insight with me once, which I've I've held on to, um, that 70% of behaviour is determined by whatever environment you're in. I've not seen the the actual study of that, but I still feel that's very quite a useful conversation piece as well. Is that our f- behaviour and our mindset is fundamentally affected by whatever environment we're in. So, so to ne- neglect that is is absolutely crazy in my view. So that's what culture is. I, I don't mind people rolling their eyes around culture because I do think it, it bores me sometimes, and I. Hear it the way I hear it talk about it's, it's often too abstract and fluffy. I don't I don't even know what they're talking yeah. about. To me, it's the most practical thing in the world. It's the environment that we are in at any point in time, and how's it making us feel? Is it giving us confidence? Is it making us feel a sense of belonging? Is it making us feel like we've got a connection with the people around us, or is it not doing those things? It, to, for someone to say those things don't matter is uh, unfortunate. I have to say is slightly misunderstanding human nature. They're, they're very very they're very essential. But, you know, as a coach, you a top coach, they have to be skilled at all these multifaceted things. They need to have a point of view on that. They need to be able to lead it consistently, but they need to be great with planning. They need to be really good at selecting talent, and they need to obviously to be very competent around tactics and, and strategy, et cetera. So, yeah, you have to be good at all those things. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, Stuart is good at all those things, and he's even better now, a few years removed with all the success he's had at Leinster. You know, one of the top two teams each season, it appears, in Europe. And uh, just a final one. I, I was very inspired reading your book, and I've made lots of notes, actually. Very, very interesting. I, I was just trying to think how I can apply some of these things to my own life for my own uh, work. So I was just wondering, do, do you think it is kind of a handbook for everyone? And 
there are messages that everyone can take and apply. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really nice point, actually. I mean, first of all, thank you for your kind comments there. I've written this book in the same way I would coach you or the reader. I haven't written this book in a way which is directive in the sense of uh, at the end of each chapter, these are the five things you must do now. Go away and do it. Because I don't believe in that. I don't believe that's how you create success because I think everything is so contextual. I think you've got to work stuff out for yourself. Um, I think you need to understand some of the big principles and then you need to figure out how to apply them. So it's not that type of book where, you know, this is the five things and then the next five things, the next five things, and you just go away and do it yourself. And then suddenly we're the best team in the world or the best business in the world. I don't believe in that. And also my coaching philosophy is not that. I don't come into an environment and say, this is your lucky day. I've arrived. Sit down. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm the opposite of that, I hope. So I've written the book in the way that I coach, which is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to share some insights with you um, based in science, but also based on, on our ancestral wisdom. Both of those things have a big influence on me. So I, I, I will always share those. I will then share the, you know, some of the research and science that connects um, those ideas. And then I'll tell stories. And each, as you know, each of the chapters has multiple stories, all real stories. Some of them are personal to me. Some of them are part of my work experience. And some of them are just people that I've been able to connect with, like the Seattle Seahawks and Chicago Cubs who told their story to me. So that's what it is. It's sharing some insight. It is sharing stories. And then it is hopefully being a catalyst for, for the person I'm coaching to work out, okay, that's really cool. That's new to me, some of this stuff. It's really got me clear on my thinking. And, okay, this is what I'm going to go, go do now in order to bring it to life. Mm. And, and that's, so that's a way of, of, with intent, that's the way I wrote the book. I wanted to come across that way, not that these are the five magic answers to solve all your problems. No, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Owen. Thank you, Simon. All the best. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.